nature of the conflict is not one of sheer power. There could be no conflict if it was sheer power. It's a conflict over character. Mm. It's a conflict over the nature of God, where questions have been raised and really slanderous allegations in heavenly courts. And the Bible uses explicit language of heavenly courts. That's not just a metaphor. And the only way that God can answer questions is by a demonstration, a moral demonstration. Well, welcome back to Advent Next, a platform where we provide expert opinions on engaging topics related to history, culture, and faith. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Dr. John Peckham, professor of theology and Christian philosophy and author of the book, The Odyssey of Love. In our conversation, we are exploring the concept of the cosmic conflict and the war between good and evil. We will discuss how a cosmic conflict worldview helps us to understand why God allows certain things to happen, as well as the limitations he abides by as he seeks to comply with the rules of engagement. While there's not an exact taxonomy of what these rules are, there are biblical implications that help us to understand how God is working to lawfully overthrow the fallen ruler of this world while vindicating his character against slanderous moral allegations. So let's get into it. So welcome to Advent Next. Um, Today, our guest is Dr. John Peckham. He is the author of this book, The Odyssey of Love, and we are continuing our discussion on the the Odyssey of Love. (laughs) Our co-host today is Michelle Odinma. Hi! (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so we're just going to roll right into it. So... Um, basically, theodicy, as we explained, you know, is kind of answering the question of why does bad things happen if God is all good and all powerful? Mm-hmm. And so, like, in your book, like, how do you feel like you're providing a more meaningful answer to this question? I mean, it's a profound question. Um, so how are you tackling it? Yeah, so in the book, I'm trying to articulate what I take to be one of the major biblical streams in response to the problem of evil. And uh, it's compatible with a lot of the elements of other approaches to theodicy that I also engage a bit in the book. Um, As we talked about in in the last session, one of the the most helpful responses is the free will defense. And the free will defense basically says that God granted creatures the kind of freedom that he can do otherwise than they want. Mm -hmm. And if he consistently grants that, that means creatures can use their freedom to do things like evil. And that's one of the reasons why we have evil in the world, really the primary reason, because creatures departed from God's will. The free will defense is very helpful, so strong that one of the recent philosophical articulations of it by Alvin Plantinga has uh, convinced even many atheists that the so-called logical problem of evil has been defeated, Mm. which is to say that it's not a logical contradiction to say that God is all-powerful, entirely good, and yet there is evil in the world because free will might be an explanation. Now, the atheists still don't think that resolves the problem entirely. They say there's too much evil in the world. Mm. That's called the evidential problem of evil. Mm. But they generally said, yeah, the free will defense is at least one possible coherent explanation. Now, the free will defense only goes so far, though, when it comes to the kinds of evils we see in the world Mm. that don't seem to be connected to the free decisions of creatures. Or put differently, even if you say, well, if God created the world good and sin and evil entered the world through the free decisions of creatures, that would be a way to explain a lot of the evils at their origin point. Uh, At least the ultimate origin. But then when it comes to the question of why God doesn't prevent evils, it seems to be, at least as far as we can tell, a lot of evils in the world that God could prevent without impinging on anyone's freedom. Like natural disasters. Natural disasters. Um, if there are reasons why he wouldn't prevent natural disasters, if there are good reasons, like maybe maybe there's natural laws and maybe God like covenants to not break the laws of nature, so to speak. Even then, even on that kind of a scenario, you could say, well, okay, well, he could warn people through like a vision or a dream to move out of the path of a natural sure. disaster 
long enough ahead so that they wouldn't be hurt. So there's a, a lot of evils that just the free will defense just by itself, the basic free will defense doesn't provide uh, uh, satisfactory explanation of. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think uh, there's more to the story, what the mm-hmm. Bible describes as a cosmic conflict. Wow. Okay. So you also describe a little bit of, um, you know, I think in the next chapter, you're talking about God's unfulfilled desires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was, you know, we discussed that a little bit in your class that I took, which I recommend anybody taking this class. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it blew me away because God doesn't always get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And that's a concept that I didn't really think about, you know. Yeah. Uh, you think he's an all-powerful God. Of course he gets what he wants. So how does this kind of unfulfilled desires of God kind of play into the theodicy question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a big piece because there are many Christians who think that God does kind of cause and control everything, and sure. then they have to come up with a very different kind of explanation about why all this evil is in this world, what, what is God's mm-hmm. purpose for it, and what is he doing, mm-hmm. and uh, some some of those explanations kind of make evil not really evil anymore, they're just kind of like instrumental goods, mm-hmm. and like, well, if this evil is happening, God must want it, and mm-hmm. then, well, why should we stop any evil? I mean, there's a lot of problems uh, if you go down that road, in my view. Uh, but the fact of the the Bible, the way the Bible presents God, is very often he's lamenting things that happen in the world. Mm. And he's saying, I wanted you to do this, right. but you did this instead. Sure. Uh, like in Psalm 81, he says, I, how often I wanted you to, to, like, to turn to me, and if you would turn to me, then I would save you. Mm. And they're just unwilling. And Jesus himself laments over Jerusalem the same way. Right. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. So you have this this motif all throughout Scripture, sometimes explicit, sometimes more implicit, where things are not happening the way God wants them to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's these circuitous roots that if you read the biblical narratives where the the text identifies God's purpose as this or that, like, say, um, sparing many people from famine in the Joseph narrative. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of a circuitous route for Joseph to go into slavery right? and then, you know, be put in prison mm. by Potiphar and then finally ascend to where he's in a position to interpret, uh, and even then to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Mm. All of this seems like it could be done in a much more direct way unless yeah, God is sure. working around impediments that we don't see. Mm. One of those is, is free will. God allows free will. And one evidence of that is that there are things that happen he doesn't want to happen, which wouldn't make very much sense if he was determining everything. Mm. Um, but then there's also more to the story where he seems to be navigating around uh, circumstances that, that we cannot see. Uh, sometimes the Bible gives us a glimpse of them behind the scenes, but in others, you just kind of infer there's something more going on here. Sure. Um, there's many other ways that God could spare people from a famine, unless there's other restrictions involved that are mm. that are at work that we can't see. So there are different passages in scripture, and one that I'm thinking about is Mark chapter 6, where Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he wants to work miracles Mm -hmm. on the people of Nazareth, but he was limited, it says, and there he could not do much work or many miracles because of their unbelief. Yes. So how does also unbelief, is is that one element that plays into the limitations that God faces? Yes, both, yeah, unbelief in Mark 6, and then prayer in, in, in Mark 9, I think it is where you have these as two of the factors, we shouldn't reduce it to those factors. I want to preface that very clearly. Mm. Sometimes people think, well, if God didn't work a miracle, I didn't have enough faith. Mm. That might not be the reason because there's many other factors in the cosmic conflict or I didn't pray enough. In some circumstances, you might have enough faith and you might, everyone might pray enough and there's still Still. things that, reasons why God is not intervening or maybe morally Mm. is restricted from intervening. And so Mm. often when people are kind of defaulting to, I didn't have enough faith or this or that, I say, remember the story of John the Baptist. I mean, there's lots of stories of deliverance, but then there's a John the Baptist story as well. And Jesus says there's no prophet greater than him. Mm -hmm. But directly to your question, I mean, in Mark 6, there does seem to be some connection, some link 
yeah. between what the way Jesus is able to use his power, at least in particular places, mm-hmm. and whether people believe in him. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way that could be true is if there are some parameters, what I call rules of engagement, in place in the book. Because, I mean, God is all-powerful. So if he wanted to do something, no one could stop him yeah. unless he's made a promise not to mm-hmm. do some kinds of things. And mm-hmm. if God is a promise keeper, which he is, he's nothing else if not the covenantal God who keeps his promises. Right. If God makes a promise, he's not going to break a promise, right? Mm-hmm. Ever. And that's going to restrict his future action. And so when you see these kinds of things, we can infer that there there's some commitments God has made. Yeah. Uh, in Mark 6, it's belief. In Mark 9, you may remember the story of this demon-possessed young man mm-hmm. where the disciples try to cast the demon out and they're not mm-hmm. able to. Sure. And then Jesus comes and casts them out. And after this whole story is over, beautiful story where the man says, Lord, I believe help my unbelief one of my favorite right. favorite statements if you're struggling with your faith and you That's think well <laughs> you know god will help me if i have enough faith well even in your unbelief just yeah. that prayer is answered right? right this man didn't have great faith like i don't know if i can believe right. so just help me at that that stage mm-hmm. uh, but anyways later when 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 the disciples asked jesus why couldn't we cast him out jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer right well, what does that mean it yeah. means that there's yeah. something going on with prayer and there's a kind of demon. Maybe some have more power than others. And mm-hmm. I would caution anyone from trying to like put all this together. I think the Bible gives us hints. I don't yeah. think we have like a taxonomy of, sure. of, of, of demonology. I, I think that can be dangerous to try to speculate on those things. But we see that something else is going on here. There are demons in the story. Prayer seems to make a difference with regard to what Jesus can do. That's not the only factor. There's many other factors. There's much more to the story that we often don't take account of. It's funny because I, I often hear like prayer is more for us than it is for God. Mm. And but and at the same time, I always kind of wrestle with this question because I'm like, why is it required for me to pray if God knows where my heart is or yeah. he knows what I want or he knows what I'm struggling great with? Question. Like, why do I need to exercise prayer? And is it always just for me? Like, how would you yeah. address that? This is great. A great question. And it does create a lot of cognitive dissonance, right? Because if God is all knowing, then he knows what's best. Yeah. So he wouldn't need to know. He wouldn't need to hear from me or from you or anyone else what he should do. Mm. If he's all powerful, he has the power to do it. So right. prayer wouldn't give him like more power, at least as a matter of nature. Right. And he's only good, so he wants to do it. So why would prayer make any kind of difference, right? And I think this is why one of the traditional explanations that's given is the one you just mentioned, that prayer is really just kind of like therapeutic or it does other goods for us, but it doesn't really affect anything that God does. Mm-hmm. That's a very traditional explanation. Um, I think it's true that prayer can do good things for us. And there are many other reasons to pray other than affecting what God does or might prevent or to try to get God to intervene, so to speak. Uh, but I don't think that prayer is limited to that. Yeah. Um, and I think we have evidence in those texts uh, that is not limited to that. And one of the ways in which it might make sense that uh, it could be true that God already knows what's best, already wants what is best, and already has the sheer power to do what's best, is if there's a situation in which God has, say, committed himself mm. to particular parameters, right? If he's committed himself um, to, to not intervene in this situ- kind of situation or to grant a kind of jurisdiction or authority uh, to others in this kind of context. This is what we see in the, the cosmic conflict where Jesus himself refers to the devil as the ruler of this world. Mm, and we can get yeah. more into later about how could it be that there's a ruler of this world. But for now, if there is a ruler of this world who has some real jurisdiction, some real power, otherwise it makes no sense to say there's a ruler of this world, there may be a kind of of um, parameters in place that God has agreed to. Mm. And part of those parameters might be, if my people pray, right. 
as we even see texts like that in the Old Testament, I'm not saying they're directly connected to cosmic conflict, but if my people pray, then I will hear them mm-hmm. and I will, I will act. It might be that because the world, at least as I understand the Bible, has basically given itself over to enemy rule mm-hmm. and basically given itself over to the demonic realm temporarily, and, and God is reclaiming it through his covenant plan all the way through the history of Israel mm-hmm. and then ultimately to the cross event and beyond. God is reclaiming this world that has given itself over, mm-hmm. and he's, and he's bringing, it, bringing it back. In this time between the times, in this time where, where there is a demonic realm, it might be the case that part of the parameters is okay, the world gives itself over to you, so you're, you have the ability, the devil, to rule for a time. And Revelation says he knows there's some parameters. He knows that his time right, is short. short. He knows right. there's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I reserve the right to do these kinds of things. And when my people pray, mm-hmm. that gives me the right to intervene in a way that you can't claim is against the rules, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. that you can't claim is impinging on your jurisdiction because that's, that's part of, of the parameters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Much more to say about that, but that's yeah, kind know, of I, I think we should get into the cosmic conflict, and I think even just that explanation about prayer makes me like feel motivated to like want to, to pray, pray more right. <laughs> instead of being yeah. like, "God, you already know, you know, you know." And it's like, but to to say like there, that there's power in prayer in that yes. way that we're accessing, yeah. you know, God through these covenantal relations that uh, allows Him to intervene. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great impetus. So explain a little bit about the cosmic conflict because you talk about how that really helps bring the framework for the theodicy. Absolutely. What, and what you just described is one of the practical uh, practical implications of having a cosmic conflict worldview. Mm-hmm. If you think that everything happens just the way God wants it to happen already, then why mm-hmm. should you pray? Not only that, why should you intervene to stop things like injustice when you can? Sure. You say, well, if, if it's happening, That's God must true. want it. Mm-hmm. But if you have a cosmic conflict view where there's all kinds of things God doesn't want to happen and he would prevent if it weren't made Maybe for these other things going on that may morally prevent him temporarily from doing so. Well, we should stop them if we could, right? And it's yeah. th- th- these are things we should be active in. And so mm-hmm. history really matters. What we do really matters. It's not just, oh, whatever's going to happen is what God wants to happen. So we can take kind of this more quietest attitude. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the cosmic conflict, putting it as briefly as possible, it is the view that um, God created creatures like, like angels, and those creatures at some point in history rebelled against him. And part of that rebellion was a claim against God's character, against his government, against his rule. And you can piece together the fact that there is a cosmic conflict from the biblical narrative. One of the clearest places is there in a parable Jesus tells in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where he talks about this landowner who sowed good seed in his field, and only good seed. And then later, it comes to be the case that tares spring up, which are like noxious weeds. And uh, his, his, his workers, they ask him, didn't didn't you sow good seed? Right. <laughs> Why is there tears in this field? Which is right. another way of asking. Did didn't you, you sow cr- these tears? <laughs> right. Yeah. Did you do something wrong? Right. Yeah. And and this is the kind of question people ask about the world. Did mm. if you created the world perfect and good, why is there evil in it, right? Sure. And the response that the landowner gives, who Jesus later identifies clearly as, as the Son of Man himself, mm-hmm. he says, "This an enemy has done." Mm-hmm. And then later, you don't have to guess. In Matthew thirteen, he explains to his disciples, "The enemy is the devil." Right. And so there are things that God has done, but then there's things that the devil has done. This is a mm-hmm. cosmic conflict mm-hmm. where God is working, but there's an enemy who is working against God. And of course, that raises questions all its own. But if you read the Bible narrative, you can't even just read the book of Matthew without seeing that this whole perspective is bathed in this conflict. Sure. This is why Jesus is encountering demons. He's casting them out. He's basically disrupting and ultimately uh, 
working the beginnings of destroying the kingdom of the power of darkness to replace it with his everlasting kingdom. Mm. It's all throughout the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation. Mm. I mean, for me, I'm like I said, understanding like prayer and the power of prayer and and, uh, the rules of engagement, like is there... How is this framework really helping us to answer more of the theodicy question? Yeah. Yeah. So let me back up maybe and say a little bit about what what I mean by the rules of engagement. First of all, when you talk about a cosmic conflict, uh, it can create cognitive dissonance in in itself. Because if you think uh, for a minute, you say, God is all powerful. How could anybody be in conflict with him? Sure. Right? Right? How could created beings (laughs) in any way oppose him? Mm -hmm. The only way that could be possible is if God is granting creatures the kind of freedom that they can do otherwise than he wants. Right? Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then the conflict, the nature of the conflict is not one of sheer power. There could be no conflict if it was sheer power. But if God was doing everything according to his sheer power, no one would have any agency and everything would be just the way he wanted it. So it's not a conflict of power, or sheer power at least. What is it? It's a conflict over character. Hmm. It's a conflict over the nature of God where questions have been raised and really slanderous allegations in heavenly courts. And the Bible uses explicit language of heavenly courts. That's not just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. There's a heavenly council and there are questions raised. And even celestial beings, some of them have questions in their mind. And the only way that God can answer questions is by a demonstration, a moral demonstration. Mm -hmm. Analogous to say, let's say you were in a position of power. Let's say you were the mayor of a city and somebody raised corruption allegations against you. If you tried to meet those corruption allegations by a show of force, mm, using yeah. your power to just stifle them, what result would that have? You're guilty. You it. It, would make, it would make you look more guilty. If you weren't guilty before, you are now, right? Sure. And this is the situation that God is in. If he wants to have a universe of love where creatures have freedom, an allegation is raised, it can only be met by a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And in that demonstration, Satan has raised these allegations. Unfortunately, some creatures have gone along with him. And the way the allegations are settled once and for all is within parameters that are the rules of engagement, where the enemy is allowed some room to actually make his case. Otherwise, he couldn't make any case, and he would just say, well, see, he's just stifling my allegations. I can't even get a hearing. I can't even show you uh, what God is really doing and that he's really not just after all. And, and God is working with him through a demonstration for the sake of everyone in the universe. Now, someone might say then, well, then why is God allowing that to happen here? Well, in the biblical narrative, this world gave itself over to this rulership. It didn't have to be, didn't have to be here. Presumably, if, if every creature in the universe, heavenly beings and everyone else, had come to the conclusion that the allegations of the devil were false, well, then God could bring judgment. Right. But until those allegations are settled at the level of our thought, because God's not going to control our beliefs, if God were to prematurely destroy mm-hmm. evil, that would just raise a whole other host of questions uh, that would perpetuate the problem. So God is dealing with the problem once and for all. And within the conflict, I think there are these rules of engagement, parameters in which God has said, uh, not unilaterally, before the heavenly council it's been decided that this is the room within which the enemy has jurisdiction, a limited jurisdiction for a time, and a jurisdiction that's dynamic. It's connected to other factors like faith and prayer and other things that are happening. So when we see, like in the book of Job, we Mm -hmm. actually see the council, we see what's going on. What do you say to people who would say, well, that's not fair. Like, God can't allow that to happen to someone like Job, or yeah. allow that to happen to me? How do you answer that? I would say it's not fair, but the unfairness is not unfairness of God. Mm-hmm. So you're quite correct. Job is one of those instances that Old Testament scholars recognize as a heavenly council scene. They sometimes call it a divine council scene, where he goes to appear, Satan goes to appear before the sons of God, which is a kind of heavenly council. And if you read the, the narrative of Job closely, you'll see 
that that uh, God and Satan just go into a conversation that's already in place, right? If right. you're just reading, you're like, what's going on? Why are you? He says, have you considered my servant Job? It'd be like if I walked in today and we're talking about the point, and I was like, have you considered my son Joel? And he'd be like, for what? Right. What are you talking <laughs> about, right? Yeah. But Satan knows what he's talking about. And apparently the heavenly court knows what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And this discussion between God and Satan that's reported, it's not just between him and, and Satan. There's an onlooking court. Sure. And he's taking into account other minds and the way that they are viewing this. And there's some evidence in the Old Testament that the heavenly council has some real governance authority. Mm-hmm. Like God shares governance with regard to at least some decision making. So this is not unilateral decisions, but Satan basically makes the allegation that Job only serves you because things go well for him. He doesn't really fear you, mm-hmm. which is not only an allegation against Job, it's also an allegation against God. Right. Yeah. Because God has already declared before the heavenly council Job to be blameless and upright. Right. So if, if that's not true, then God is not just, which is Satan's claim in the beginning. And so Satan, comes to heaven, uh, Satan goes to heavenly council and he says, he's not just, you declare him just, you're not a just judge, and I could prove it to you if you didn't put this hedge around him. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's mm-hmm. what he says. You have a, you right. have a hedge around him. Sure. And if you would just move the limits, then I could prove that you're unjust. Well, uh, we might say it's not fair for God to do what he does, but I would caution us, first of all, to recognize that we don't know what God knows. Right. And so when we say I, God should have done this or that, uh, am I really in a position to know what the alternatives were <laughs> sure. and what the outcome of those alternatives would be? Mm-hmm. But just from our limited human understanding, we might be able to make sense of it somewhat because Satan is raising these as like legal allegations in a court, and there's a heavenly counsel there. Mm-hmm. And God in his infinite wisdom, I believe, knows that uh, if, if you don't give these allegations a hearing, right. then they only fester, they only get worse. Yeah. And if he's allowing the heavenly counsel some, some shared governance, it might be the case that either he knows or they themselves speak, even though it's not reported in the book of Job, that the only way these allegations can be settled is if you give him the room to try to make his case. Otherwise, God just says, nope, you're wrong. And Satan says, well, I could have proved it if he would have let me, which is what he does consistently throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's one of the example of rules of engagement. And in that case, you see that they're dynamic. Satan brings, you see that there's rules already, the hedge. There's already limits on what Satan can do. He couldn't know there was such a limits unless he was trying to do bad things to Job, right? right? And second of all, they're moved dynamically before the heavenly council, not unilaterally by God, because these allegations are raised in the heavenly council. But you see this not just in Job, you see it in many places. Like in Daniel 10, you have Daniel praying for understanding from God, Mm -hmm. and he's praying and fasting for three weeks. Mm -hmm. Finally, an angel comes to him and says, from the first day that you prayed, right, Right. I was sent, but I was basically delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which many Old Testament scholars believe is a a celestial ruler behind the earthly king of Persia. So you have this conflict with rules of engagement. It would make no sense for an angel to be laid three to be delayed three weeks right. if God is using all his power. Something else is going on, mm-hmm. these parameters. And I think that's true in the case of Job as well. I don't think God wanted any of those things to happen to Job. Uh, but I think that there were no other preferable alternatives for everyone concerned, uh, given the heavenly counsel situation. Wow. And I think, you know, it's interesting how God is trying to bring so many minds along with him, mm-hmm. right. you know, in, in the court case, because if it was just up to him and just according to his judgment, he could make snap judgment because he's omnipotent, but he's having to let things play out yes. for the sake of the other people who are watching and even for the mm-hmm. sake of us. Yeah. You know, it says, don't you know you will judge angels, Paul mm-hmm. says, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that there's this process that God has to go through that is unfortunate for us in a lot of ways. It is. Uh, but, and it's unfortunate for God, you know, that he's not wanting to have to take as much time as he, he is. But what you shared, I feel like it's really uh, enlightening about, like, you know, why was uh, Daniel's angel delayed for three weeks, you know, like if mm-hmm. God is omnipotent, that there are rules of engagement. And I know that there's not, like, quite a taxonomy that we can create about what those rules of engagement are, but, right. like, are there... 
is there like a any kind of general rule that you would kind of put out there? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think we should be careful not not to try to. I don't think we're. I don't think it's revealed what the rules of engagement are. Right. Sure. Like you said, like you just said, in kind of a straightforward fashion. Like here's the rules. Right. Yeah. Um, I think they're rather complicated, and mm. I think they're connected to other factors like right. faith and prayer and other things. And they're different in different situations. When God has a covenant with Israel, I think there's evident evidence that they had special privileges because God could do more mm-hmm. for Israel within that covenant than maybe He could do in mm. other places morally. So interesting. Uh, I have to give right. uh, again. I can't give all the evidence for these kinds of things that, that I think are, are evidence in Scripture, but there's a lot there. Um, but I would say uh, a couple of things kind of in general. First of all, uh, I want to go back and emphasize that there are many things that we do not know. Mm-hmm. And even in the book of Job, there's, there's, there's another line of response to the problem of evil that a lot of Christians uh, appeal to. And I think we don't want to appeal to this pre- too prematurely because I think we want to say more than just this. But the way God responds to Job, as far as we know, Job doesn't know about the beginning of the story. He, does, he doesn't sure. know he about doesn't what's know going what's on in heaven. Right. And he's faithful anyways. Yeah. But in the process, Job comes to realize that he's not really in a position to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. He's not really in a position to judge. Mm-hmm. And this is the view that some uh, Christians who are, who are trying to defend God's character against the problem of evil call skeptical theism. Mm-hmm. It's a horrible name because it sounds like they're skeptical of God. Right. <laughs> but actually, right. they're, what they're skeptical of is human ability to understand God's ways and God's purposes. Mm-hmm. And you have kind of like a hint of that in the book of Job. Like, we should not be so confident that we can figure all these things out. So right. we should be very careful that even when our explanations reach our limit and say, I can't make sense of this anymore, well, should we really expect to be able to understand everything that God is doing? Um, when, it, when it comes back to the parameters of the rules themselves, I think whenever we, we encounter some evil or some difficulty where we're prone to think God should have done something differently, I think one of three or more than one of these three things is, is probably happening. Either it is the case that if God were to intervene the way we think he should, that that would undermine the kind of free will that's necessary for the maximal flourishing of love. Or I think it would be against the rules of engagement that we don't know precisely what they are, but God knows, and he's not going to break his promises, and Mm -hmm. and it would be evil of him to do so. Mm -hmm. And so what we think he should do would actually be for him to commit evil, which God is never going to do as a God of love. Or third, if God would really do what we think he should do, the, the consequences, the ramifications would be worse or far less preferable for everyone concerned. Sure. And we don't understand that. And one or more of those, I think, is at work whenever we, in, we encounter evil that we think God should have done differently. And I always want to, and I have this kind of same kind of mind that's like wants to figure things out. Right. I always try to remind myself, you know, I really don't know all the factors involved. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I know some frameworks. I have good, really good reasons to trust God. Mm-hmm. And I probably at some point should say, you know, uh, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to pray. And uh, there's some things that I won't know now. And I look forward to, to asking God in the right. future. Right. It's interesting that that Job was the first book of the Bible written, you know, and, and that it's answering these questions. And I've often thought the same thing. God doesn't give him an answer to be like, hey, so there was a court case going on and <laughs> we were trying to t- try your character. Like yeah. right. he doesn't give him any of that. Right. Yeah. And But we as the reader, we get that information. But him as a character, he doesn't have that. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting that that's kind of the first framework that we get for theology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, but as, as kind of we wrap up here, you know, you kind of end your book with, you know, looking at who suffers the most um, mm-hmm. in this cosmic conflict. Mm-hmm. So in your opinion, like who suffers the most? Is it his creation or is it God? I think it is God. And that's in, in no way to downplay the, the really horrible suffering of creatures in the world. 
But I think the Bible uh, portrays a God who suffers whenever we suffer, Mm -hmm. which means not only do you have that very acute suffering at the cross event, which is really unfathomable to us, (laughs) the Son of God giving himself at the cross, but all through the history of the world, he's, he's carrying this suffering on his shoulders. Right. But the good news is not only that he suffers with us, but that he is going to put an end to suffering. Mm-hmm. And there is a delay because God is not going to act. He's not going to exercise his power to end suffering prematurely. He's not going to act until the, the questions are answered in a way that evil would never rise again and that people won't doubt God's character. Why does he care so much about his character? Mm-hmm. Not because he's egotistical, because you can't love someone if you think they're a tyrant or even sure. if you think they might be a tyrant. Sure. You can't really have a love relationship, an intimate love relationship of the best quality with somebody you don't trust. Mm-hmm. And once those questions are decided at a level of thinking, at the level of a legal level of God making provision to be the just and the justifier at the cross... Then, once the great controversy, the cosmic conflict comes to an end, then he can exercise his power in a way that everyone will understand, and people will serve him out of love rather than fear. So he has suffered the most, and I think we have uh, good reason to believe, to trust him, because he didn't have to suffer any of this. He didn't have to create the world in the first place. He doesn't have to bear with the world when the world rejects him. He certainly doesn't have to come and become incarnate and give himself for this world. So when all other explanations fail, I think we can look to Jesus, look to the God of the cross, and we can say uh, that God can be trusted and loves me more than than I can possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. And even if my questions are not answered to my satisfaction here and now, this God can be trusted, and I want to follow that Jesus, the one who not only dies for me, but also calls me to a higher way of living Mm -hmm. that actually lives out the principles of love around me and makes a difference in the world and doesn't just say, oh, the world is the way it is, but actually calls us to actually be agents of God's goodness to other people wherever we can. Wow. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Michelle, thank you for being my (laughs) co-host. And if any of you have a chance, pick up the book, The Odyssey of Love. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening in. We appreciate the support and viewership of our audience. Stay tuned for next week as we enter the world of architecture and explore the history of church design and the power of design in the creation of sacred spaces and the facilitation of spiritual encounters with Christ. We want to thank our guest once again, Dr. John Peckham, as well as the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. And remember, whatever platform you're listening on, be sure to comment, like, and subscribe. See you next week.